0: You live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatley, And here is what you need to know. Agreed in principle, the EU says it will extend the Brexit deadline but won't make it a formal offer until next week. Never again. Boeing vows to fix the 737 MAX after Indonesia's Lion Air crash uh, report points to it. The FAA and the crew as the cause and amazon same day shipping makes a rare cut in its profit it's friday and this is first move Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. Call it the angst over Amazon. Shares of the online retail giant are sharply lower in pre market trading. Let's take a look here down six and a quarter percent after its earnings miss and softer guidance as well. Uh, Jeff Bezos is about to become billions of dollars poorer. He could actually lose the crown of the world's richest uh, person. Uh, His uh, net worth is down about seven billion dollars or so. But Amazon's woes aren't hitting the broader market hard. Futures are on track for a flat to modestly lower open as we wrap up an intense week of earnings. Results have come in overall mixed. As of yesterday, more than 80% of companies have beaten expectations. And the SE500 remains only about 1% away from record highs. That said, Amazon joins the list of high profile companies like Twitter, 3M, and Ford, whose results have actually greatly disappointed investors, Twitter shares, closed down almost 21% on Thursday. Trade war uncertainty continues to be a big theme as well. A speech by U.S. Vice President Mike Pence yesterday shows that even with a trade truce, the tensions between the U.S. and China are still simmering. Pence criticized China for its record on human rights. China called the speech, quote, lies. All right, let's get right to the drivers. Uh, And then another ongoing flashpoint investors. I'm talking, of course, about Brexit with just six days until the British Prime Ministers die in a ditch deadline to leave the EU, October 31st. Brussels says it won't decide on the length of a delay until next week. It is waiting to see the outcome of the latest standoff between Boris Johnson and the UK Parliament. This time, the deadlock is over a proposed general election on December 12th. Mr. Johnson says it is the only way to solve the nightmare Brexit crisis. This is his third attempt to try to force a snap vote. And it looks far from certain that things will go his way uh, when the House of Commons votes again on Monday. Right, right, let's bring in uh, two of our best and brightest international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, and joining us live now from Downing Street. De Santos is with us from Brussels as well. Nick, I want to begin with you. So just walk us through what do you make of Boris Johnson's strategy here. He's basically saying listen, I will give you a little bit of extra time to look over the withdrawal agreement bill as long as you give me my general election. Will his strategy work?
1: Yeah, look, uh, the, do or, the die, uh, do, do or die in the ditch, that's now dead. That's clear. Um, the prime minister seems to have offered uh, an extension for these talks that wouldn't be acceptable to anyone in the opposition. Quite simply, it's still much shorter than what they required. And it's tacked onto that an election that they're not ready to sign up for. And uh, the leader of the opposition today has said Boris Johnson, the prime minister, has to absolutely take off the table the possibility of a no-deal Brexit, Um, Although, interestingly, uh, the leader of the opposition did seem to indicate that he would potentially go for an election even earlier than December the 12th. And the very fact that Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, appeared on sort of primetime morning viewing in the UK is sort of an indication he's really sort of gearing up for an election race because that's the sort of audience you would would target. So we do seem to be in this sort of high and growing expectation of an election, but perhaps not on the Prime Minister's terms, because they're not palatable at the moment. He needs a two-third majority in Parliament. He needs the support of the Labour Party. And at the moment, that just isn't clear that he's going to get it at all.
0: all right, next, stand by. let me bring in Nina Dos Santos. So, Nina, just walk us through how is uh, this proposed general election by Boris Johnson on December 12th affecting the EU's thinking when it comes to uh, an extension?
2: Well, it means that we have another one of these political games of chicken and egg, if you like, Um, just each side waiting to see which one will blink first. Essentially, the EU's position is that uh, things are so fluid in Westminster, they're waiting to see whether or not that uh, motion is tabled for a general election, and as Nick was pointing out, whether or not it would command enough of a majority to actually pass uh, before they actually sign off on this extension. Now, what we had today in the morning was a second meeting so far this week of EU ambassadors for the 27 remaining member states. Apparently that meeting was constructive according to an EU official speaking to earlier today and that there was a full agreement that there should be an extension. The only problem is is that they can't grant one until they know how long that extension should be. Um, Now the only date that they have on the table to work with at the moment, is the one that Boris Johnson's letter sent over the last weekend proposed, which is the end of January the 31st of next year. But um, as we've been reporting over the last couple of days, France has made it very clear that it believes that the time pressure should be kept up to try and focus minds in the House of Commons and for that reason they haven't yet managed to come to a unanimous agreement. Any extension has to, by the way, be granted unanimously by these member states and as such the work will continue over the course of the weekend. Now one piece of good news so far is that it seems as though both the European Commission and EU officials who are in these ambassadorial meetings continue to say that they're looking to try and achieve this agreement on an extension by written procedure, which means they might be able to try and avoid one of those costly and time-consuming EU summits next week. Zane?
0: All right, Linus Santos, Nick Robertson, thank you both so much. All right, Amazon stock sank pre-market as the e-commerce giant admitted same day delivering Uh, is costing more than it thought. Shares fell as much as 8% after hours, after Amazon earnings came in below Wall Street's expectations. The company shares uh, have pared those losses just a little bit. All right, Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, they missed uh, estimates, and as a result, that stock is being punished by Wall Street. Just walk us through part of the issue here. They've been spending so much money on same-day delivery.
3: Yeah, Zane, in the last quarter, we got uh, really the news that Amazon is back in an investment cycle. They are really now spending uh, once again to maintain their, their market leader position, and this is yet more evidence of that. So their, their revenues accelerated a little bit. 24% was the best growth rate in a year. But, but profits were down 28% year on year. So that is worrying to the street. And also the fact that guidance came down for the crucial fourth quarter. But let's take a look at that one day shipping specifically, because this is what's getting a lot of focus. Amazon promised earlier this year to make it standard uh, for prime members. And this has caused a major overhaul uh, of their logistics and fulfillment sys- uh, system. Uh, so you see that shipping costs in the quarter were up 46%. They also forecast a $1.5 billion uh, penalty uh, because of those shipping costs in the fourth quarter. That is, again, a crucial quarter for the holiday season. And it shows those costs are rising. And Really interestingly, they added around 100,000 new jobs uh, just in the third quarter alone. A stunning acceleration in terms uh, of hiring. And most of those, the company says, uh, are in fulfillment and transportation. So to support that one-day shipping. But Zane, it's not just in uh, shipping that they're spending. Amazon Web Services, which is the crucial profit driver of this business, they they saw expenses go up there for sales and marketing and infrastructure. So that is also causing some concern among analysts, especially given the competition in the cloud.
0: And when you think about the holiday season, uh, the guidance for the holiday season this year, slightly underwhelming. Was that mostly because of domestic demand or international demand for Amazon?
3: It's both, uh, Zane. They said that there were actually some idiosyncratic factors that will affect international demand going into the fourth quarter. Diwali, which is usually in the fourth quarter, uh, was now partly in the third quarter this year. There's also a consumption tax that, that rose in Japan, so that could affect things as well. But it's really uh, overall, and as I said, driven by those higher shipping costs, $1.5 billion uh, is more than they say they, they have spent over the past uh, two quarters. So as that demand ramps up, so will the cost of providing the one-day shipping, which is now really reset customer expectations. The stock zane which is down some 10% since their last earnings call when we got the news of that investment cycle down again, uh, as you say today. So it looks like uh, the street is kind of lowering its expectations in the medium term for Amazon.
0: All right, uh, Claire Sebastian, I was there. Thank you so much. Boeing says it's implementing safety recommendations raised by Indonesian investigators about its 737 MAX aircraft. Earlier today, the investigators released a summary of a report into the Lion Air Flight 610 that crashed in October last year. They identified Boeing as one of nine contributing factors to the crash, which claimed the lives of about 189 people. Oren Lieberman is a CNN correspondent and a pilot. He's actually been covering the story of the 737 MAX 8 and the fallout of the crash for several months now. So, uh, Oren, just walk us through uh, the summary of this uh, Lion Air report.
4: Zane, first, it's worth noting that the final report by Indonesian investigators hasn't been put out yet, so there are a lot of unanswered questions and certainly details we want to see, especially, crucially, some of perhaps the transcript of what the pilot and co-pilot were talking about during the 11-minute flight before it crashed. But we did get a summary, and they put out what they called nine contributing factors to the crash saying that if any one of these hadn't have happened, perhaps the crash wouldn't have happened. But, of course, they they did, leading to that crash back in October and the deaths of all 189 on board. Now, they spread out the blame over just about every factor and agency involved in this crash, but crucially, they point to Boeing and the FAA for what they say was an improperly designed system that was then improperly certified. They said it was the automatic MCAS system at the heart of the investigation that activated improperly over and over over again, eventually overpowering the pilots. Shortly after the release of the summary, Boeing put out its own statement saying it's working on correcting some of these flaws, crucially making sure that this MCAS system has more than one source of information and that it will will only activate if both of the sources of information agree. And then it's said that a pilot essentially will be able to overpower the MCAS system if it improperly activates. We know that not only in this crash, in the Lion Air crash, but also in the Ethiopian crash, this MCAS system, when improperly activated, overpowered the pilots on board, forcing the airplanes to nul- the nosedive into the ground, the 737 MAX aircraft that remains grounded at this point. Crucially, Boeing now says that won't happen with the fixes, and that the pilots will be able to, with manual input, overpower the system if it's improperly functioning. They also say they're working on updating flight manuals uh, and flight training, which is what Indonesian investigators say was crucially lacking. But that's not where this report ends, Zane. Investigators also point to the flight crew, miscommunication in the cockpit, and a uh, co-pilot who wasn't properly trained and didn't properly respond to the emergency for some of the factors that led to this crash. Again, Zane, it's a complicated report, as we expected, because it's a complicated aircraft. Boeing and the FAA now trying to fix the problems that were there on board, as well as on board the Ethiopian flight, and get this plane recertified. It's been out of service now, grounded for months around the world.
0: So with these fixes, as you mentioned, the 737 MAX is still grounded, but with these fixes that Boeing is talking about, at what point do we believe that the 737 MAX will be back in the skies?
4: still weeks away, which is our latest update from the FAA administration, and this process has been ongoing. Boeing was certainly hoping to have the plane back in the air by now, because it's grounded all around the world. But the process continues, and throughout this process, Boeing has repeatedly discovered more problems as they tried to recertify the aircraft for flight. And that process continues. Uh, My colleague Ivan Watson asked Indonesian investigators, would they be comfortable flying this plane? Do they have confidence in this plane? And do they think it's safe? They wouldn't comment on safe or not, but they say from everything that was learned from this crash and the subsequent Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crash five months later, the plane will be in a condition to fly once the FAA signs off, once the world's uh, aviation authorities sign off, and the plane is once again certified to carry passengers and fly
0: live for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so these are the stories making headlines around the world. Tear gas and bullets have been fired in Baghdad, where police dispersed a demonstration. Two people died, and 95 others were treated for suffocation in the Iraqi capital after being exposed to tear gas. meantime, Lebanon's president has made no concrete concessions in his first nationwide address since protests erupted against the country's political elite a week ago. And in Chile, what started as protests... rising subway fares have turned into a wider protest against living costs and inequality. Matt Rivers is in Santiago for us. So, Matt, just set the scene for us where you are. Uh, We know that at least 18 people have been killed and police have actually responded to demonstrators by firing tear gas, rubber bullets and uh, water cannons as well
5: absolutely. I mean, if you're talking about protests that are going on around the world right now, you know, Chile has to be near or at the top of that list. We're in the capital city of Santiago, and right now, this would be the calm before the storm. We are expecting demonstrators to be out here yet again for probably what will become more violent protests. That would become the seventh straight day of protests here in Chile's capital, uh, and we're expecting people to come out as the day continues here. Uh, It's a little after 10 in the morning here, but you can see police uh, and the military are getting ready as well. Right there behind me, uh, you can see there's some trucks there. Uh, That would be a truck on top with a water cannon mounted that has been used quite a bit. And in front of that, there's a smaller truck that actually uh, sprays tear gas as it drives through the streets. We've been seeing those kind of scenes uh, throughout the week. Uh, Over here, you can also see the fact that there's been a lot of damage on storefronts, subway stations. And right now we're seeing crews out here before the protesters come out, try and and do what they can to clean up uh, before what will inevitably become more protests uh, during the day today. No doubt about that. In terms of what people are upset about, the list is long. I mean, really, it starts and stops with the fact that this country uh, has one of if not the highest rates of economic inequality in the world and what you're seeing here on the streets is a middle class that is frustrated with what they see as the rich keep getting richer and the fact that the middle class is stuck in this middle income trap that they can't seem to get out of even though chile uh, economically speaking is one of the wealthiest countries in latin america people here are frustrated and they're going to come back out into the streets once again today on friday here in chile's capital
0: live for us there. Thank you. we have much more on the protests in Chile uh, and in Bolivia, actually, uh, a little bit later on in the show. Okay, other stories that we are following. Maria Butina is due to be released from a Florida prison in the coming hours. The Russian operative, who pleaded guilty to conspiracy to act as an agent of a foreign government, is expected to be deported as soon as she is released. Butina spent 18 months behind bars for trying to infiltrate American political groups and promote Russian interests in the United States. And still to come here on First Move... A global wave of rage as protesters from Latin America to the Middle East take to the streets will look at what is sparking the unrest around the world and search, yet smarter. Google introduces AI that can make sense even of the most awkward phrases. That's next. the first move coming to you live from new york stock exchange where it's still looking like a mostly flat open for stocks amazon's earnings woes continue to weigh uh, on sentiment its shares are set to fall about five percent of the open after its earnings miss but intel is a bright spot for the techs the chip giant Is up 3% pre-market on strong results and better-than-expected guidance. In the meantime, European stocks are trading mixed as investors follow the latest Brexit uncertainties. The pound is under pressure but still near five months' highs. Uh, The European Union has agreed in principle to grant Britain a further extension, Brexit extension, but won't make a decision on how long it will be until next week. This comes after a call for an early election by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Mr. Johnson plans to introduce the motion on Monday. He spoke just a short time ago. Here's what
1: he said. Of course, October the 31st is still possible. We could leave on October the 31st. So he's wrong. Unfortunately, it depends. Uh, unfortunately, it depends on what the EU says. Uh, we're in a situation now in which, under the terms of the surrender act that was passed by Parliament, it is up to the EU to decide whether or not. Uh, we stay in the EU. Okay, made the, you up, made that point. Can I to the EU to decide how long that extension would be? What I'm saying to the to the Labour Party, to Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, is that they have the opportunity now to get this thing done. Okay. Time for Corbyn, man up. Let's have an election on December the 12th.
0: Chief UK Economist at Commerce Bank joins us live now. So, uh, in Boris Johnson's words, is Jeremy Corbyn going to, quote-unquote, man up and grant the election for December 12th? Would that be a wise thing for the Labour Party to do, given their standing in the polls?
6: Well, I don't think it would be a particularly wise thing to do. Um, And as a consequence, um, I rather think that the Labour Party will not grant Boris Johnson his wish. I mean, we certainly hear that something like 140... MPs have already talked to Mr. Corbyn, saying this would not be a good trap to walk into. Um, so I, I rather suspect that we won't get an election, uh, and it will then be uh, incumbent upon Boris Johnson to try and pr- promote his deal to Parliament uh, and allow a, an appropriate uh, discussion of it, uh, and allow MPs to scrutinise it in a way which will allow it to be uh, to be passed into law.
0: So if Boris Johnson though does. He does get an election, he does get what he wants on December 12th. Uh, Just walk us through what is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for Boris Johnson going forward in terms of that withdrawal agreement bill?
6: Well, the best case scenario is that he obviously wins a majority in Parliament uh, and as as a consequence is in a position to push through any legislation that that he wishes more or less. Uh, and that would certainly enhance the chances of the withdrawal agreement bill being passed um, possibly by the end of January if the EU grants a a three-month extension uh, the worst case scenario is that he falls well short of a majority, I mean I think it's pretty likely that the Conservatives will still be the, uh, the, the largest party in Parliament but uh, after the events of the past week or two it's pretty unlikely that uh, he'll be able to rely on the Democratic Unionists in Northern Ireland for support uh, and as a consequence, uh, he has to make sure that he has uh, a, 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 as small a deficit as possible uh, going, into the, uh, going into the next parliamentary session.
0: So the likely scenario is that even with an election, even if he does get what he wants, he's still in a massive bind.
6: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think it's often overlooked that uh, just getting the withdrawal agreement bill through really only marks a staging post on the way towards Brexit. Uh, It takes the UK into a transition phase, uh, which will expire at the end of 2020, and it is therefore uh, incumbent upon both the UK and the EU to get a a deal uh, secured by the end of next year. And it's pretty unlikely that that will be the free trade agreement that the uh, the government currently hopes.
0: So, given the uncertainty over uh, the election, I mean, obviously, EU officials are looking at this very, very closely be the smart move from the EU in terms of how long to actually grant an extension for? Do they grant uh, an extension until January, later, slightly earlier? What would make sense, given Boris Johnson calling for an election?
6: Well, I think the uh, granting an extension to January probably would be the the optimal move. I mean, anything shorter probably just isn't going to be long enough. But if you go too much longer than that, you certainly run the risk that it emboldens uh, rebel MPs in the UK to postpone the uh, the Brexit uh, deal still further, and that's exactly what the uh, EU does not want. So I think the the three month extension, uh, as has been mandated in UK law, would certainly uh, be the least worst outcome, if I could put it that way.
0: And the fact that we saw the pound uh, obviously drop at one point down one percent yesterday after Boris Johnson called for an election. I mean, what does that tell you about? What the markets want in terms of just all the uncertainty surrounding what an election would mean and, and just Brexit overall? Well, I think
6: the markets, like you know, like many of the electorate, just want this problem to go away and they can focus on some fundamentals. Um, but I, I think the very fact that the pound initially weakened uh, it tells you that markets are as fed up with the uncertainty as the, the rest of the country. Um, And I think it just injects yet more uncertainty into the process. I mean, the the pound had been trading pretty strongly over the course of the past couple of weeks on the basis that a deal seemed near, and it still is. It just requires it to go through Parliament. We just need a little bit more time. Um, And I think that the problem really is that Boris Johnson has tried to railroad this all through by the 31st of October. That's not realistic, but if you said the 30th of November, that's certainly a realistic prospect, and I think the pound would certainly benefit under those circumstances.
0: Uh, Peter Dixon live for us. Thank you so much. Okay, you are watching First Move. The opening bell is just a few minutes away. See you on the other side of this. Right, those fist pumps there. Uh, that is the final opening bell of the trading week. i coming to you live from here at the new york stock exchange as expected let's take a look it looks like a honestly it's a flat lower open for stocks as we wrap up the first big week of earnings let's take a look here the dow is down uh, 30 points or so pretty much flat at the moment almost half of all the companies in the sd500 have now reported earnings most are actually beating expectations by not Uh, Not by the wide margins we've seen in past quarters. Trading could continue to remain in a narrow range until we get the Fed's policy decision on Wednesday. A lot of people, by the way, expecting them to cut interest rates at least once, if not twice uh, this year. But there's a growing sense of the Fed May be close to the end of its easing cycle. Let's take a look at some of the global movers, uh, just in terms of earnings. Amazon shares are sharply lower. Let's see, down about four and a quarter percent. The company's profits fell for the first time in more than two years, due in part to the cost of one-day shipping. Amazon is investing heavily in one day shipping. And that's partly why they missed on earnings. Uh, Also given some soft fourth quarter guidance as well. Sales growth, uh, however, does remain strong. Let's take a look at Intel shares. They're rallying up over 5 percent. The chip giant beat earnings estimates by a full 18 cents a share. But it's raising its fourth quarter outlook as well. Intel is citing strong demand for chips that power cloud computing data centers. And Nike shares are little change; They are basically flat right now. Uh, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence criticized both Nike and the NBA in a speech on China policy yesterday. Pence says when it comes to Hong Kong human rights, Nike, quote, prefers checking its social conscience at the door. Nike pulled Houston Rockets merchandise from China stores this month after the general manager of the Rockets angered China by supporting Hong Kong protests. And shares of AB and BEV are trading 8.5% lower uh, in Brussels. The Brewer reported sluggish sales in the third quarter, especially at its Asian business. That prompted the company to cut its earnings forecast uh, as well. Paul and Monica joins us live now. So, Paul, just walk us through this. Part of the issue was price hikes in Brazil, South Korea as well, and also uh, commodity cost increases too.
7: Yeah, that definitely weighed on the results. But I think the bigger story, Zane, is that you have in China, sales growth is really slow dramatically. I think that's because of the economy in China. Cooling off, so that is a problem for AB InBev. But also here in the US, this is a company that is continuing to struggle to try and find new drinkers for its core Bud and Bud Light platform. Hard Seltzer, think of White Claw, that is a major competitor now to AB InBev and other alcoholic beverage companies. That's why AB InBev is going to make a big splash, hopefully for them, in this category. They are going to be launching uh, Natty Light on the lower end, as well as Bud Light Spiked Seltzer. They have another product, Bon & Viv, and they're hoping that these new products can counter some of the slowdown in their core beer brands, even in their microbrews and craft brewers that they own.
0: So aside from US, obviously that's sort of a struggling sort of market for A B and Bev, but just in China we know that competition is increasing. You touched on this. How important is the China market for A B and Bev?
7: Yeah, it's extremely important, obviously, especially since uh, you also had A B and Bev. Recently, list its Asia Pacific business on the Hong Kong exchanges. Shares there are lower as well this morning for the uh, AB InBev uh, Hong Kong uh, you know uh, stock for that Asia unit. So clearly, China and other areas of Asia are going to continue to be a growth market, even though AB InBev sold a piece of that to try and uh, cut debt. But the good news for AB InBev is that there are many other markets around the world where sales are still growing pretty dramatically. They're doing extremely well in Mexico Colombia South Africa so aBM Bev there are some bright spots but the u.s slowdown and China obviously the two biggest economies in the world that's going to be a problem no matter how many other emerging markets are doing well
0: Monica thank you. White House has been adamant that phase one of a trade deal with China is secure and that is a significant step towards a wider deal. But the message from Beijing seems less optimistic. Richard Quest spoke with Peter Navarro, the top White House trade advisor, and asked him why.
8: The best thing for investors in particular to do is not pay attention to the press releases of either side. Right? It's all happening. The Lighthizer rule is... All negotiations happen behind closed doors. So we have firm commitments from them that we will have a phase one deal. There were good faith negotiations. They've left us at the altar before. Maybe this time uh, we'll, we'll get the deal, but uh, so far. So it is so- a real deal. Phase one well, is real. I, I can because, tell you. I can actually, tell you what's in it. But no, you, no, but but a lot of people uh, that I've spoken to have sort of said this is smoke I and know, mirrors. No, of course it's a real deal. I, I I can tell you kind of kind of chapter and verses what's in it. The centerpiece of it is an enforcement mechanism that will apply to all phases. That's we can't have a deal without strict enforcement, and it's going to be an enforcement. Mechanism that allows us rapid response to any violations. Now, having said that, the most important part of the deal, and it's fully formed, is the intellectual property theft. Uh, we get virtually the entire chapter right. that we had from the 150-page agreement. There's a good start on forced technology transfer. There's right. good stuff on currency manipulation. Some things are not in there, dumping and subsidies, for example. Right. Peter
0: Navarro speaking to our Richard Quest woes and slowing Chinese growth continue to weigh on third quarter profits. 3M, AB InBev and Ford are among the companies blaming China for weak results. Drayden Pence joins me live now with his take on earnings in the markets. He's the chief investment officer for Pence Wealth Management. Drayden, thank you so much for being with us. So let's talk about this earnings season overall. Um, it seems as though just given some of the global headwinds, given the U.S. trade war with China, the companies that have less international exposure are the ones that are bound to fare better.
9: Exactly. I think you know when you focus on the US and the US economy is still tremendously strong, more people making more money than ever before, and I think that that's going to carry through. And the international companies with a lot of exposure there are kind of subject to this global slowdown, some of the headline risk that's out there, so more US-focused portfolios we think are going to outperform the global portfolios uh, in nature.
0: And just in terms of the U.S. trade deal with China, what's your anticipation? Because obviously, you know, both companies, both countries rather stand to benefit, especially given that President Trump has an election around the corner.
9: Well, in negotiating with the Chinese, you're always going to find these jukes and pivots and, and the things that they're going to do. And they'll do something, then they'll back away and they'll come back and forth. So this this deal's not over yet. And I think there's going to be still a lot more... Uh, negotiation and after negotiation and renegotiation to go on. But the big thing to know in all of this is every day that goes by, China gets weaker, and the U.S. gets stronger or stays the same because companies are moving out of China. And when they do that to avoid all the tariffs or the threat thereof, China's got some real problems long term. And I think that they're not going to be able to fully wait this thing out.
0: When it comes to the Fed, uh, the anticipation is that at least the Fed is at least going to cut interest rates one more time, possibly two more times this year. What's your expectation? And if the Fed only cuts once? What sort of market reaction are we going to get from that? I
9: think if the Fed only cuts once, you're going to have a negative market reaction, but we won't know that fact until December. Right, right, right. right? So uh, the, the other challenge is is that the last two cuts that the Fed did are really just taking off two hikes that we don't think they should have done in the first place. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. we're sort of back to even keel where we were uh, back in July, and now they've had, they're probably had to take one off. They might have to take two to kind of catch back up to where they are. If they hadn't raised too much too fast, they might not have to do two, but I think they're gonna have to do two. If it's not two this year, then it's one this year and one right at the beginning of next year. when
0: When you think about the state of the U.S. economy, especially the strength of the American consumer that everybody talks about, are two interest rate cuts warranted? I know you say that they have to make up for the fact that they raise interest rates too many times, but is it really warranted based on the state of the U.S. economy right now?
9: Well, here's the issue. The Fed raises interest rates to change human behavior and human behavior has changed. I mean, young, you know, 45% of the population is under the age of 44. They don't know an interest rate. So when you get housing rates above 4%, demand really falls back off. You know, used to, we would think 6% was an acceptable interest rate. No longer. So behavior has changed dramatically. And so the Fed, those moments where where people really change their behavior around interest rates happens at a much lower rate than in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to adjust to that. And that new the Fed's got to adjust how they think about it. So we're going to end it lower for longer. Uh,
0: let's talk about Boeing. You're bullish on Boeing. You own Boeing. Um, you know, for Boeing at this point, we've got that, uh, the summary of the report for the Lion Air crash. For Boeing at this point, it seems as though things are really going to turn around when the FAA is able to recertify the 737 MAX. But they've been boosted by their defense business. Right? And, and, and so that is what is, I mean, we've got their earnings. It wasn't as bad as people had been sure.
9: anticipating, partly because of the Fed. Well, I think people, Boeing's got a 50-year history of solving big problems. The 737 will eventually fly again. You've got a very long backlog of orders that people are, are not going to do. So all of that's kind of, it's just, the question is not if, but when does the 737 fly again? but people forget also the major defense components of Boeing and the US is spending more on defense, but also the NATO treaty and forcing everybody to increase their spending to 2%. There's a lot of additional foreign countries needing to spend, they got another $780 billion they're going to spend over the next five years, probably. And a lot of that's going to be spent with U.S. defense contractors. And Boeing is a big one. And they're going to benefit from that mm-hmm. because the same treaty that says they've got to spend 2% also says it has to be interoperable with U.S. products. So I think that there's an underpinning that people are underestimating on Boeing. And we think that it's still a very good, positive, long-term story. All right, Brad
0: uh, and Pence, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you it. very much. Um, okay, so after the break, anger and frustration boil over in flashpoints uh, across Latin America and the Middle East, with politicians and the economy in the crosshairs. We'll take a deeper dive after the break. In corners of the world, we are seeing violent protests with a common thread. In Iraq, demonstrations flared against corruption and unemployment. In Chile, a rise in metro fares triggered wider protests. In Lebanon, it all began with anger over attacks on WhatsApp calls, while in Bolivia, public concern about election fraud boiled over. Bring it all together, and these protests are about the economy, corruption, and the failure of politicians. Patrick Esreyes is head of Global Research. And so asset management, Patrick, thank you so much for being with us. So you look at the protests happening in Bolivia and it appears that people are angry about a perceived power grab by Eva Morales and you look at what's happening in Chile and on the surface it looks as though, oh, people are upset by income inequality. But what is the common thread that ties those two two protests together?
10: Um, Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, it's very easy, uh, you know, to use, you know, throwaway labels like a Latin American spring, right? I mean, that could, uh, you know, cut across all of these countries and these protests. But in fact, the drivers are very, very different, right? Um, as you pointed out, uh, you know, in Bolivia, you know, the protests are primarily fueled by the perception that Evo Morales was trying to tamper with a vote and secure a 1st round victory, which may not have actually been a 1st round victory, right? Uh, in Ecuador, you know, the protests were really protests against fiscal adjustment, right? in a country that is you know undergoing a very very aggressive fiscal consolidation adjustment under the auspices PanF program that is you know clearly you know cutting against you know uh, various sectors of the population at large right and driven by an indigenous movement I mean that uh, you know felt particularly disenfranchised Chile is a, a different kettle of fish right? uh, Chile is an example of economic modernization theory. Uh, people 's incomes have gone up right? poverty lines have declined people's expectations are going up so now you know people are no longer asking for you know a home you know or higher basic incomes they're asking for you know better education better public services, better transportation right? um, and it's that uh, you know, increase uh, you know in uh, in the uh, uh, in the public transportation fares. You know that uh, that that detonated you know a, a level of disenchantment that has been bubbling, not just in Chile but in a number of other middle-income in you know, countries also throughout Latin America.
0: So people look at Chile, for example, and they think, oh, this is one of the wealthiest countries in Latin America. Oh, it's super stable. But what are we missing about what life is like if you are if you feel disenfranchised or if you are at the bottom of the income Totem pole, or if you're um, middle class, you just feel as though you're, you're being left out.
10: So what we're missing, uh, you know, is that uh, you know even though poverty has come down in Chile, you know significantly, you know even though you know Chile, you know has enjoyed. You know, deeper and a more sustained you know growth cycle than you know practically all other countries in Latin America, inequality continues to be very high, and this unfortunately is a trait you know that is common across the entire region. So many of these countries that enjoyed you know the super commodity cycle, I mean all through the last decade, you know and you know were able to you know paper basically, I mean over these cracks, you know are now you know facing a population that is structurally in a very different place. And is asking for you know very very different deliverables um in chile you know that has also been particularly aggravated by the fact that you know you have a president who is one of the wealthiest members of the country you know who is generally perceived as having something of a tin ear right um and embodies right you know that you know entrenched inequality that people have been protesting about
0: when you think about the fact that a subway fare hike could have sparked this level of anger and frustration. It makes you wonder what has been bubbling beneath the surface for many years.
10: Exactly, you know, what what we've been talking about just now, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, you know, Latin American populations I mean by and large you know have now you know matured to you know a different cycle right and, and are asking for you know a very different set of deliverables uh, are asking for you know deeper social safety nets they're asking for greater protection you know they're asking for you know policies I mean that will diminish you know overall inequality I mean that is prevalent throughout the region let's not forget that this is not the first time we've actually seen a generalized protest you know in response to a public transportation hike. you know in Brazil in 2013 you know we had thousands of people sat on the streets triggered by exactly the same thing we're seeing in Santiago today. So
0: what is the lesson that we should take away from this? It's not just about this idea of everybody becoming a little bit more prosperous. It's about the gap. It is about the perception of unfairness. Even if everybody's income rises, the gap between the rich and the poor will always be a source of frustration for people.
10: That's exactly right. Um, you know, we're moving now. You know, to you know a phase where you know it's no longer about lifting people out of poverty. You know, it's about uh, you know ensuring that you know policies will be much more equitable and will distribute the wealth uh, you know a lot more broadly across the entire country.
0: All right, Patrick Estrayes, thank you so much. It's time for a quick break here on First Move. we be right back. back here's today's boardroom brief the social media giant facebook says it will add a new section to the app dedicated to news facebook news tab will have curated content from various publications but only some will be paid for their content who will be paid remains unclear making local newsrooms worried about being left behind and Nearly 50,000 General Motors employees in the US are voting on a tentative deal that could end their five-week strike. The results are expected to be announced in a few hours. The early reports are mixed. It is the longest strike in a decade and is estimated to cost GM billions of dollars. And Google search is getting smarter. A new AI tool will help answer even the most casually phrased Questions. It's the biggest upgrade to Google's algorithm in five years. Hadas Gold joins us live now. So, um, Hadas, the system is called BERT. Just walk us through how exactly it works and how it will change uh, the way Google search actually functions.
11: Yes, I say invert stands for a bi-directional encoder representations from transformers, which is pretty much a fancy way to say that Google search is getting smarter in terms of how we actually talk and how we actually search. It's uh, the easiest way to explain this is to show you an example. So let's say you search, can you get medicine for someone at a pharmacy? Now you and I understand that what you're trying to find out is whether you could pick up medicine for somebody else at the pharmacy, but before Google would show you results about getting your own prescriptions from the pharmacy. Now it will start to show you the correct answer. Another example, parking on a hill with no curb. Before the system would consider the word curb more important than the word no, so pretty much what the system is now doing is taking the cues of the order in which the words appear in the sentence, which is how you and I understand language in a day-to-day basis. So now what they're saying is that the results in your Google searches are going to be a little bit more accurate. we've all searched for things in our random search languages we all use and the results aren't quite there. Google is saying that this is going to improve the type of results we get. It's all about artificial intelligence recognizing the order in which our natural language is used. Now, they say that these uh, results will only affect about one in ten searches, but if you think about the billions of searches that are done every day on Google, that's going to mean hundreds of millions of searches are going to be what Google says are improved. Now, you're not going to be able to tell which of your searches uses BERT and which don't. You're not going to be able to revert back to a pre- BERT search, but Google says this is a very significant change. As you said, it's the biggest change for their search in the last five years. Uh, And unfortunately, though, so far, it's only going to be available in English in the United States. But I should expect that this will be rolled out eventually across all different languages. Of course, different languages, they set up their sentences differently. Words have different meanings. But this is all showing the power of artificial intelligence and how they're teaching their system to learn our natural languages because every day they say there are mi- millions of new searches in Google, and every time you put in a new search that Google hasn't seen before, they say this system is learning more and more about how languages put together in order they say to give us more accurate results for what we're actually looking for. Zayn.
0: Yeah, the biggest update to uh, Google's algorithm, as you mentioned, in five years, this is big. Obviously, a lot of companies live and die by where they are in. Uh, a Google search engine, so this is massively important. A lot of people are watching this very, very closely. Had us gold, thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Thank you so much for watching First Move. I am Zane Ash, I'll stay with CNN. But connect the world starting right after this short break. Enjoy your weekend.